0: So we trust you to do that now in your great name, Jesus. Amen. Well, prepping to start the series on Romans, it's felt a little bit like prepping to climb a great mountain. And when you're looking up the base of a towering mountain, uh, that feeling that you have can be both thrilling and intimidating. Now, It's thrilling because you think that's where we're heading. That's where we're trying to go. And it's intimidating because you think, that's where we're heading. Like that's, that's where we're trying to go. That's going to be really, really hard. And the reason Romans feels like this to me is because of, one, the theological heights that it takes us to. Also, though, it goes through complex topics and tackles them on the way. And at the same time, I think about the profound influence it's had throughout church history. You know, great Leaders like Augustine and Martin Luther and John Wesley were all dramatically converted through the book of Romans, and John Bunyan studied it in prison while writing his classic allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. John Calvin wrote that when anyone understands Romans, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. Similarly, John Knox believes Romans is unquestionably the most important theological work ever written. Literary critic Samuel Coleridge simply says, Romans is the most profound work in existence, period. That is quite a statement. He's saying that nothing greater has ever been written than Romans. And we are setting out then on a glorious task, which is to seek to understand what God has spoken to humanity through this great book and to let him speak by his spirit directly to each of our lives as well. Our passage today is the introduction to this classic book, which was originally written as a letter. And the introduction, it helps us to understand the focus of the entire book of Romans. I'm going to give you the, the big idea up front Romans is all about God and how the gospel changes everything. Romans is about God and how the gospel changes everything. To see that in the text, we're going to look at a simple outline. We're going to look at the author, the assignment, and the audience. If you're taking notes, I'll give that to you again. We're going to look at the author, the assignment, and the audience. For our first main point, look at Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. We're going to briefly look at each one of Paul's descriptions of himself here in verse 1. And the first thing to see is that he says he's a servant of Christ Jesus. If you know your Bible, you know that Paul is not always a servant of Christ. He was first a devoted Pharisee who hated Christians and viewed them as a dangerous cult that were that were perverting the Old Testament scripture. In many ways, Paul functioned as a, a hound dog for the Jewish religious leaders, because he would hunt down Christians whose only crime was believing in Jesus, and then he would have them thrown in jail. And many of them were also killed. Paul was there at the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and was likely responsible for the death of many of the very first followers of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, imagining putting yourself in Paul's position. You know, I know many of you, you struggle with guilt about the sins you've committed in your life and whether or not God wants to forgive you, whether God can forgive you. And for some, it's abusing drugs. For others, it's your sexual past. For others, it's the way that pride and, and selfishness destroyed your family or people that you care about. You know, I met a man last year who moved to Des Moines from California to escape the gang scene there and he was wrestling spiritually with the many violent crimes that he had committed he was still haunted by his past even though it was he had he'd worked so hard to try and distance himself from it and what i would like you to do is whatever you have done in your life i want you to think about it in light of what paul has done i want you to compare it to paul you know if anyone should have been haunted by their past it was him you know before becoming a child of god Paul killed God's children. He helped to kill God's people. So that was his background. And Paul, he never forgot that. And yet he didn't forget it in a way you might not expect. Near the end of his life, as Paul looked back on his pride and and persecution of Christians, he made this famous declaration in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He said, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them but i received mercy for this reason so that in me the worst of them christ jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example of those as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life if god saved paul he can save you if god forgave the apostle paul then he can forgive you that's what paul is saying in those verses He's saying God has extraordinary, or some translations say unlimited patience for those who would believe. Isn't that good news? That God has unlimited patience for those who would believe in Christ. Instead of doubting God's love for him because of his sinful past, Paul understood that his background actually helped highlight how vast and powerful God's love truly is. I believe this is why the first thing Paul tells us about himself is that he's a servant of God. He says that before even mentioning his high calling as an apostle, Paul led with a, a description that emphasized Christ's authority and then his humble position, him, his humble position under the Lord. Now, this Greek word for servant in verse 1, it literally means a slave. It's one who is bought and owned by another. This is exactly how Paul describes all Christians in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, "You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body." This is an aspect of a believer's new identity in Christ that was common in the early church, but it's very rare in our day. Now, each and every author of the New Testament of a New Testament letter referred to themselves at least once as a slave of Christ, and that was a settled part of their self identity. But when was the last time that you heard a, a Christian refer to themselves? as a slave of God. You know, to be praying and, and saying, you know, God, I just thank you that I'm, I'm your child. I thank you that I'm a citizen of heaven. I thank you that I'm your slave. It's like you just, you don't hear that, right? You don't hear that. Now, there's a number of reasons for that. But I think it's important that, that we take all the different descriptions of our new identity in Christ. We need all of those to help us to have a, a right view of ourselves, a healthy relationship with God. You know, in Romans chapter six, we're going to see that, that every true believer is also a slave of Christ, that, that that is part of our new identity. And as Christians, then, what this reminds me of is that we are doubly owned by God. I mean, you might have heard the illustration of a, a little boy who made a, a model boat. And he made a, a boat and spent a lot of time putting it together. And, and he loved this boat, and he took it out to a creek one day. And he was, he was playing with it, and a gust of wind came. And it, it took it out of reach, and he ended up losing it. So he lost this boat. But then a few weeks later, he was in town at a, a store. And they happened to have that same boat. Someone else had, had gotten it and taken it to like a pawn shop. And so his own boat, he then turned around and he bought it. He emptied his piggy bank to, to get his boat back. Now, all illustrations, they break down at some point. But what that helps us to understand is that if you are a Christian, Jesus owns your life twofold. First, he's your creator. Every breath in your lungs, it's from him. But not only that, the Lord Jesus, he also shed his blood to buy you back from sin, to pay for your sin. So who was Paul? He was a slave of Christ. The second thing Paul tells us is that he was called as an apostle. Called is a repeated word in this introduction, appearing three times in just seven verses, and it hints at a key theme of this book, which is God's sovereignty over all of life, including over salvation and gospel ministry. Now, God's sovereignty does not eliminate genuine human responsibility and agency, but it does explain why Paul was so confident that God would be able to fulfill all of his promises. It explains why Paul knew that when the gospel was preached, that God would use that to save sinners. It also explains why Paul was adamant that he did not make himself an apostle. He said, God called me to it. God called me as an apostle and made me an apostle. Now, what is that? What is an apostle? Well, the word means a sent one or a messenger. And in the Bible, to be considered an official apostle of Christ, you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus. So you had to be an eyewitness to Christ after he was raised from the dead. And then on top of that, you also had to be commissioned specifically by Christ as his authoritative representative. He was one that that Jesus pointed to and said, you are going to, to spread the gospel for me. Now, all Christians are commanded to share the gospel. But the apostles, they're the ones where Jesus said, you know you're sharing the gospel if you're sharing what they taught. If you're, if you're telling people what they taught, what the, God, what the apostles preached, and we have that as Christians in the New Testament, that's the preaching of the apostles. That's the explanation of the gospel by the apostles who were taught by Christ himself. Now, this, this calling as an apostle, it overlaps with the third way that Paul described himself in verse 1, which is that he was set apart for the gospel. In fact, in Galatians 1, Paul tells us that he was set apart from God before his birth for the gospel. In verse 1 then, we meet the author, Paul, of the the book of Romans. And then in verse 2, what he does is he introduces us to his unique assignment. He explains what, what God has called him to and set him apart to do. And this is our second main point. It's the assignment. The assignment. Since Paul was an apostle and set apart for the gospel, his first responsibility was to preach that gospel, to preach what had been revealed to him directly by the Lord Jesus. Now, we get a a brief overview of the gospel that Paul is going to methodically unpack throughout the book of Romans in verses 2 through 4. The first thing I want you to notice in verse 2 is that the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. It says in verse 2, talking about the gospel, that, that God promised this beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So just like Jesus explained to his apostles after his resurrection that the whole Old Testament pointed to him, Paul is explaining the same thing here. He's saying, I'm not really presenting something new. I'm presenting what the Old Testament was already pointing to, what the Old Testament was promising. You now This is one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so important for Christians still today. It's not irre- irrelevant. The Old Testament helps us to understand God. It helps us to understand his eternal plan. and It helps us to understand why Christ is the only one who can save sinners. You know, Paul demonstrates this, for, demonstrates this for us in Romans because over and over again, he proves his point. He proves his gospel by citing the Old Testament scriptures. So the first thing Paul wants us to know is that the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. The next insight from the gospel comes in verse 3, where we get the core content of it. In verse three, we see that the whole gospel message is centered on Jesus Christ. It's centered, he says, on God the Son. You know, if you follow the, th- the flow of thought from Paul, if you just drop the aside about the Old Testament scripture in verse two, it says that, that Paul was set apart for the gospel of God concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the, the good news. Or the gospel of God is therefore the gospel of his Son. Now when it says Son here, it's referring uh, first and foremost to the the second person of the Trinity. It's referring to to, uh, the Son who's co-eternal, co-equal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And God the Son, in the incarnation, he became Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now understanding this is so important because when you believe who Jesus is and what he's done. It's believing that which unleashes the power of the gospel in our lives. Now, commenting on this very verse, Martin Luther said, here the door is thrown open wide for the understanding of Holy Scripture. That is, that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. If you don't understand Christ, you won't understand the nature of God. If you don't understand Christ, you will not understand salvation. You won't understand how to relate to God or or how God desires us to live. In the same vein, Calvin explained verse three like this. He said, the whole gospel is contained in Christ. To move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, doesn't that minimize God the Father or God the Holy Spirit? Doesn't it minimize them? And the answer is no. You see, all three of the, the persons of the Trinity. All three members, they share the one and only divine nature. And as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Remember what Jesus said in his ministry? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. The more we understand Jesus, Jesus Christ's identity and nature, the more deeply we'll understand the Father and the Spirit As well, Jesus' identity and work, then, they're what the rest of verses 3 through 4 emphasize. Now, these two verses, they are very dense. There's a lot we could say about them. We could actually preach a whole message just on these two verses. But don't worry. (laughs) We're not going to do that. But for the sake of time, I think what they most clearly highlight is Jesus' humanity, his deity, and his saving work. I'll point those out quickly to you. Where do we see Jesus' humanity? Well, it says that Jesus, in verse 3, was a descendant of David according to the flesh. So here we see that that God the Son, he was born with a genuine or fully human nature. He wasn't pretending to be a human being in the incarnation. God the Son, he became a real man with a real human nature, just like yours and just like mine, yet without sin. At the same time, Paul also emphasizes that the eternal son never ceased to be fully God during the time of his earthly ministry. This is what we see in, in verse 4. It says there that, that he was appointed, or as many translations say, he was declared to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus was fully man, but here we see that he was also declared to be fully God. He never lost that, that divinity, but it was made clear. And how was it made clear? It was through his resurrection, through the resurrection from the dead. And so was Jesus fully man? Yes. Was he fully God? Yes. And the Holy Spirit proved that when he exalted Jesus and raised him from the dead. Paul expands on this in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, saying, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. That whole section in Romans 8, it reveals how the power to live the Christian life, it doesn't come from depending on your own willpower, but it comes on depending on the indwelling Holy Spirit, which all believers have when they put their faith in Christ. Twice in, these, in this verse, it says that, that the Spirit lives in you. God dwells in you if you're a Christian. We mature, therefore, not by becoming more and more strong and self-reliant, but instead we mature as believers by realizing our inherent weakness and becoming more and more reliant and dependent on the Holy Spirit's power to help us obey and to become like Christ. Romans 8, 11, it also points to the incredible promise that just as the Holy Spirit raised Christ's body from dead in glory, so believers who die will have their bodies not just raised but glorified as well, raised in the pattern of Jesus' perfect resurrection body. Right. I heard recently that the, American, the average American male lives to be 73 years old. Now, women, congratulations. You beat us. You tend to live to 79 years old. But when I when I heard that, it hit me that just based on the numbers, if you just go based on the statistics, you know, even if I live a, a full life, you know, we could die any time, but if I, I lived a full life on average, I'm likely over 50% of my way to death. I'm, I'm likely over 50% of, of my way through through this side of eternity. And that's wild to me because in my mind, I still picture myself as young. You know, I, I think, often I think of myself as 25 years old, uh, which is always shattered whenever I play basketball and I just pull my hamstring like every, every time. Like I'm not, I'm not getting any younger. But the older I get, <laughs> can I get an amen? Can I get an amen? The older I get though, the older I get, the more thankful I am that this life is not all that there is. I'm thankful that that not only do we have wonderful promises for this life in the gospel, but we have have the promise of a perfectly fulfilling eternity with him as well. Now That hope, it's only possible because of Jesus's saving work. And that's clearly alluded to in verse 4, because there would be no resurrection from the tomb if there was no crucifixion on the cross. Now, this brings us back to Paul's assignment. Why was Paul to preach the gospel? Well, he tells us in verse 5, through him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. Notice two things here. First, Paul was to preach the gospel. And one of the goals of that preaching was to make disciples of all nations. Now, I say that because we saw last week that the mission of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations. And they do that by teaching them to observe or obey everything that Christ has commanded. Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he was uniquely sent to preach the gospel among the nations. And Paul knew that as the gospel is shared, that there's going to be people who become disciples. There's going to be people who become obedient to the faith. Now, I like that phrase the obedience of faith, because I think it helps to, to bring balance to one of the greatest messages of the book, to the book of Romans, and that is that sinners are justified not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sinners are not justified by obeying the law, but they're, they're justified by faith in the crucified Christ. Romans could not be more adamant about that. Now, here's the question, though. If we're saved only by faith, does that mean that Christians can live however they want? They can just do whatever they please. That's something Paul had to address multiple times in Romans. He is is anticipating that question. And to borrow Paul's words, his response is, by no means. Can Christians just live however they want? Do whatever they want? Paul says, by no means. As we study Romans, we'll see that a saving faith in Christ alone, it always leads to a changed heart. It leads to a a life that's marked with a new desire that you didn't have before to obey Christ. Paul describes this as the obedience that comes from the heart. Just like we saw in verse one that, that he wanted to be a slave of Christ. There's something that changes when someone comes to know Christ, where now you want him to be your master. You want him to be your God. This understanding that guards the gospel and the church from those who want a free ticket into heaven but they don't want a a relationship with the God of heaven, which is what the gospel actually offers. And so Paul, he was to preach the gospel so that by faith, real disciples would would be made with a desire to obey Christ. This sets up the second thing that I want you to notice, and that is that Paul's highest motivation for his ministry was the glory of God. As much as Paul cared about sinners being saved and and becoming disciples, as noble as that that motivation is, as Christ-like as that motivation is, Paul's chief ambition for the mission, according to verse 5, was for the sake of his name, or the sake of Christ's name. It was for Christ's honor. Paul's ambition was for God to be glorified because that is the purpose of all of creation. Colossians tells us that that everything was made by God and everything was made for God. In fact, God commands us in scripture to do everything for his glory and honor. Has that ever seemed strange to you? No, it has to me in the past. The command to to glorify God, it can make it sound as if God is insecure or or if God is, it's like God's on a, a universal ego trip. Now, for example, the, the book of Psalms, it contains 150 songs to God, ultimately written by God, so that God's people would use those to sing to him, to worship him. So God basically wrote a book for people then to sing about how great he is. Now, husbands, I want you to, I want you to imagine how your wife would react if you wrote even one song about how awesome you are and you gave it to her. Like, happy birthday, honey. Like, here's a song so you can always remember like how blessed you are to be married to me. (laughs) You know, like, how do you think that would go? How how do you think she would react? She'd probably write a song about how lame you are. (laughs) You know, like, you know, what's crazy is God has done that. God has done that, not just with the whole book or not with just Psalms, but with the whole Bible. He's done that with with the whole universe and even the whole of human history. All that has been made is for the glory of God. And that's not because he's on a cosmic ego trip. When people see the glory of God, what that means is that the invisible, perfect nature of God is somehow revealed to them. And since knowing God is what we were made for, God's command to seek his glory is the most loving thing he can command us to do. It's consistent with his his loving nature, perfectly consistent with his love. Because to seek after God's glory is to seek to know and delight in and reveal to others the only one who can satisfy our souls. You see, it would be selfish and wrong for for us to seek our own glory. That would be inappropriate. But it's not for God because he knows that's what's actually best for us and he actually deserves it. The glory of God, it's a massive theme in Romans, and it's found right at the theological pinnacle of this book in chapter 11. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen." The glory of God was everything to Paul. It was the great joy and goal of his whole life. And so what was Paul's assignment then, based on verses 2 through 5? It was to preach the gospel. It was to make disciples. It was to go to to unreached Gentile nations and all of it was for the sake of the name that's above every name, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was all for his glory. Now with that, let's consider a few, for a few minutes, let's consider our third main point, the audience. Who is this great letter written to? Well, in verses six through seven, we see that Paul was writing originally to the early believers in Rome. And he refers to them as loved, called, and saints. He says, you're loved by God. He says, you're lo- you are called as I am, and you're, you're saints, you're holy ones. Now, the words loved, called, and holy ones, they were used in the Old Testament to highlight the Jews' unique relationship with God. And here, Paul applies them to the predominantly Gentile Roman church, and it seems like he does that on purpose. This is another important theme of Romans, which is the equal standing that Jewish and Gentile believers have in Christ. Now, as we're, we'll see next week, Paul had never been to Rome. And so when he wrote this letter, he was on his way to deliver an important financial gift to the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And he was bringing that gift from the Gentile churches that he'd planted. Now, after visiting Jerusalem, Paul had his sight set on Rome. He planned to to visit there briefly, and he planned to visit there because he wanted to encourage this important church spiritually and to be encouraged by them. Now, this church was was right in the capital city of the Roman Empire, which dominated the world. So Paul, he wanted to go there and, and be mutually encouraged by the trip, but he also wanted the Romans' support. He wanted the Roman Christians' support because he was planning to head to Spain afterwards, where, to Paul's knowledge, the gospel had not yet penetrated. And so this is another reason that Paul wrote Romans. He did it with the hope that, that the gospel he was sharing with them, the insights he was sharing, would bless the Roman church, and then that it would encourage them to want to support him as he took that same gospel to places where it had never been preached. We see that in, in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, we see something else that's interesting. Even though Paul had not yet visited the church in Rome, he had many close friends there. Many people who he had labored with in the gospel. It appears that many people that he had worked with had moved to this important city, had moved to the the church in Rome. And so these treasured friends and the many other believers in Rome that Paul had never met, they were the, the original audience of this letter. They're the first people that Paul was writing to. And he ends his introduction with his signature greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. He says over and over again in Paul's, in Paul's greetings and the way Paul closes his letters. Grace and peace. This is such a, a fitting combo. Because the grace of God, it's the only source of peace that human beings can have with God. Now to help you think about this, have you ever ever had someone that you really respected who was really upset with you? Has there ever been someone that you really, really respected and looked up to that were, were really angry at you? And you know, maybe you've experienced that with a parent. Maybe it's, maybe it's been with a spouse. Maybe it's even been with a good friend. And it, it's a terrible feeling to have someone that you look up to who is upset with you, especially when you've failed, especially if, if you've sinned. You know you're, you're in the wrong. It can make everything else in life feel unstable. You know, it's almost like there's, there's a, an earthquake on your feet and you're, you're trying, to, trying to get your balance, but you're just un, unsteady. You know, many years ago, I was disappointed and, and hurt by one of my best friends. And, and when he attempted to talk it out, when we met together to, to talk it out, I was very cold towards him. I don't think I intended to be, but I was cold. I was not gracious towards him. And he, in turn, was very hurt by that. He was very upset with me. And I still remember just the way, the way he looked at me. He was, so, he was so upset. And then he got up, and he just stormed out of the house. He just, walk, just walked out. And I remember being like, oh, no, like I messed up. <laughs> I remember calling him. He didn't pick up. And that night, I was wondering, did I unintentionally ruin one of my closest relationships? Like, I, didn't, I knew there was tension. I didn't, know, I didn't know it was like this. And so the next 24 hours, it was not very fun. It was, it, was, it was miserable. because I'm, think, I'm thinking to myself, you know, how can I apologize? You know, what can I, what can I do to, to reconcile this relationship? And because of the drama, because of that, that conflict, I still remember vividly the relief I felt when he finally accepted my apology, and when he, when he apologized to me as well. It was like the ground that was kind of, you know, rumbling beneath my feet. It was like it finally, it finally settled, and I was able to plant both my feet again. And the reason it, it felt that way is because we were at peace. We were, we, were, we were at peace finally. We were at peace again. And I share that with you because I think that's a little taste of what it's like when unbelievers realize for the first time that their creator is upset with them, that God is angry at them because of their sin You see, this is also important for Christians to understand because our feet are unsettled when we don't remember the new way that God views us, the new way that God looks at us in Christ. With my friend, I remember writing him a note and and getting him a gift to try and repair the breach in our relationships. But Romans is clear. There's nothing that we can do to pay for our sins. There's nothing that you can do to appease God's rightful wrath towards you. We don't have a way of bargaining with God. We can't negotiate a peace treaty with him because in his holiness, God must punish all sin. He can never ignore sin. And so what we deserve from God is hell. We deserve hell, which is why salvation is only possible by grace. It's only possible because of the undeserved kindness of God towards us. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the grace of God. Jesus is the grace of God, and he came to be punished in our place on the cross and rise from the dead so that God could offer us a reconciled relationship as a free gift. Just like with Paul, who didn't deserve it, who committed all those ugly sins, and he was reconciled. He was brought back into relationship with God as a gift. We can be as well. If salvation was based at all on our performance, then we would never have peace with God because we could always blow it. Because salvation is based on on grace and received by faith, we can have profound peace with God through Jesus Christ. This brings us back full circle to what we said Romans is ultimately about. Romans is all about God and how the gospel changes everything. Romans is about God and how his gospel changes everything. Think for a moment with me just about our, our three main points. The author, Paul, his, identically, his identity was radically changed by God, so much so that one scholar says you cannot understand who Paul is unless you understand whose Paul is. You have to understand that, that God owns his life, that he's a slave now of God, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel. What about Paul's assignment? What well, was to preach the gospel of God, centered on God the Son, so that, the, so that people are saved and become obedient in all the nations to God for the glory of God? What about the audience? What well, was written first to the believers in Rome who were loved by God and called as saints for the purpose of, of building, building them up in their faith in God? But Paul, he also desired for the message of Romans to be preached throughout the world to, to those who were lost so that they would believe in Christ so, so that God would be glorified more for his grace. Romans, from the very beginning then, is all about God. And it's not going to change as we work our way through it. That, that is going to stay consistent. Commentator Leon Morris, he captures this beautifully in his thoughts about Romans 1-2. He says, God is the most important word in this epistle used about 160 times, roughly 10 times per chapter. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter, he relates to God. In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness and justification and the like, we we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There's nothing like it elsewhere. What this means is that Romans, it was written for us. It was written to you and me, but it was not written primarily about us. Romans is about God. And in our study through this great book, if it's going to produce lasting change in us, then like Paul says in Romans 12, we must be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need need to let God change how we think about all of life. And first and foremost, we need to let him change how we think about him. With that in mind, I have one simple application for you. And that application is to pray that God would strengthen, unite, and grow our church through the study of Romans. I'd ask you to pray and expect God to use his word to strengthen, unite, and grow our church through the study of Romans. And when I think about the powerful ways God has used Romans in the past, it excites me to think about, how does he intend to use it in our church? How does he intend to use it in your life and in my life and my hope is that God would use it to reveal greater heights of himself to us, and that he would use it to unite us as a church in our, in our love for him, and in our desire to, to glorify him in all that we do. I also hope that, that God will use this to save people that we haven't even met yet, the people who uh, God is working on in the community, who, who visit and come through our doors, and they hear the gospel plainly revealed in this book, and they see it lived out in our lives. That's my hope. And so I'd encourage you to to pray and and ask God, trust God, to use this study. Let's go ahead and and close by doing that now. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the, the peace that we can have with you because of your grace. Thank you, God, that we don't work our way to you. We don't obtain our salvation through our work. We don't maintain it through our work. We thank you, God, for how precious your grace is and Lord, I pray for us as a church, and I pray that we'd have a higher view of you. God, that we would be more impressed by you and we'd be more, more just amazed by the gospel and what you've done for us. God, please deepen our, our faith in you, God, our, com- our confidence in you, our, our love for one another. And God, we do pray for a greater heart for others to come to know you as well, that you'd be glorified in the lives of others and that, that there'd be People who are right now heading heading towards hell that would, would cross from death to life with us as we as we work through this series together. And so, Lord, we we ask you to to bless everything that was shared this morning, and again, just bless our time going through this this whole book. And we trust you to to do that. I pray this in your great name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we're gonna continue our service now. With